You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Well, good morning. You have survived the deadly, sometimes hour change, at least for parents of young children. You've made it. Welcome you. We are glad that you're here. Um, my name is John Robinson. I'm one of the pastors here at Liberty, and uh, it's a joy, as always, to be with you and to open up the Word of God um, this morning. Uh, if you uh, don't have a Bible and are using the, the hardback-covered Bibles, uh, we're going to be on page 847 this morning uh, in Mark chapter 11. So we've been working our way through the book of Mark Albeit at a hurried pace, it is our hope that you are reminded of the point of Mark's gospel, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And because of who Jesus is, it changes everything about who we are. At this point, and in this point, uh, this truth claim that Jesus is the Son of God uh, is, is captured very well in the Nicene Creed that he is very God of very God, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made. And this statement, this identity of who Jesus is, makes all the difference in the world. He has literally set a dividing line for all history. And yet, it has been the practice of many to make Jesus as palatable and acceptable uh, as possible. Uh, in a way to remove the teeth from the Lion of Judah. But we must see Jesus for who he is. Uh, last week, Pastor Casey at Liberty Lebanon preach, is preaching through a, a series on the I Am's of Jesus, and he reminded us uh, that we must allow Christ to self-identify himself, uh, which I would encourage you, if you have not uh, visited Liberty Lebanon uh, their, their schedule is on the welcome table. We'd love for you to, to be an encouragement for them, uh, to listen to them online as well as uh, God is doing a great work in Lebanon. Uh, so we see it is not who we want Christ to be that is important. It is who Christ is and has revealed himself to be through the scriptures, these very words of God. Jesus is not a God of our own understanding or making. He is the great God who has revealed himself through the scriptures to his people for his glory. So that as we read even this morning uh, the word of God, let us be ever aware of Christ's character and nature and claims about himself, that we may know him and love him. So let's turn now to this book that we love, Mark chapter 11. We'll read verses 1 through 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage, and to Bethany, the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it and we'll send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said 
and they let, him go, let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he, and, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. And they came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple. And he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him. For they feared him because of all the crowds was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they went out of the city. And as they passed by, in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Almighty God, creator and sustainer of all things, you give us your word and by your words, you guide us to streams of living water. May we drink deep of its truth this morning. May we through it be strengthened in our faith, that through it we may be refreshed and reminded of the finished work of Christ on our behalf. Amen. In our passage today in Mark 11, uh, we see Jesus as showing himself as three things. The prophet, the priest, and the king. And life and ministry of Christ and his arrival in Jerusalem, it marks the realization of this promise, this promise that he'd been talking about of coming to Jerusalem. We know that Christ had set his face like a flint to Jerusalem. And this action of coming into Jerusalem now would mark the conclusion of Christ's earthly ministry. The unglorified Christ would never leave the holy city. His arrival in Jerusalem also marks the beginning of what the church has celebrated as Holy Week, with the celebration of, of Christ's last week uh, of life. Now, there are debates on whether or not these events took place over the course of a week or over the course of months. Regardless, the gospel writers, Mark specifically, will spend one-third of their, of their Gospels on Christ's time in Jerusalem. John would spend, will spend one-half of his Gospel on the events in Jerusalem. One commentator said it like this, The Gospel writers understood that the events that happened 
in the short time between Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem and his ascension into heaven fulfill God's promise of redemption. The first of these events would be Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem. So first we see Christ, the victorious king. As Jesus and his disciples made their way from Galilee through Jericho up to Jerusalem, they came by way of, of Bethphage, the house of unripe figs, and Bethany, the house of sorrow. Some critics would cite that the, the scriptures are wrong here because uh, the road actually goes to Bethany first and then to Bethphage, but uh, what we have found through archaeological study is yet again the Bible was right in this and that the Roman road that comes up from Jericho came first to Bethphage and then to Bethany. So if you're interested in little facts like that, there you go. Tuck that one away and enjoy it for later. Uh, Jesus and his disciples come to the Mount of Olives, which is located directly east of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, and it stands about 300 feet over the city. And there's no doubt in this moment when Jesus sees the city, sees the holy city, he begins, uh, he begins to uh, see what was before him, what he knows is coming. This time of preparation um, would, would begin what he would know to be a time of suffering and sacrifice that be, would be required inside of these, of these city walls. Jesus tells two of his disciples to go, go over to the next town, possibly Bethany, to retrieve a colt, a foal of a donkey. Now, normally, uh, a king's arrival into a city uh, like Jerusalem would be filled with prestige and pomp and circumstance. And we know that uh, when we hear about uh, great rulers and kings and Caesars like Julius and Alexander the Great, when they entered into Rome, atop white stallions decorated and adorned with all elaborate dress, uh, that this was the typical entrance. Or when Prince Ali Ababwa entered Agrabah riding his elephant Abu, there was much pomp and circumstance and golden camels. But these arrivals into cities for kings were displays of power, displays of prestige, but also indications of intent. Yet what we see with Jesus, as, as Rachel told us earlier, we see the sovereign ruler of the universe, the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, not enter with, with great pomp and circumstance riding on a white horse. No, that will come later. He comes first into the city, not on a stallion, but on the foal of a donkey. This decision would be very intentional and tied to two very well-known passages for the people of ancient Israel. Genesis 49, 8-11. And here we have Jacob blessing his sons. But what is not typical here, what was not the custom, is that the firstborn son did not receive the blessing of promise. No, in fact, it was not Reuben who received the promise, but it was Judah who received the blessing. It says this in verse 8 of Genesis 49. Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub, 
From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouches as a lion and as a lioness who dares to rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. The kingly identification shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the people, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Furthermore, Zechariah 9.9 would go on to tell this about the coming Messiah, the promised one, the king. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughters of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming, righteous and having salvation is he, humbled and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. These two passages indicate that there was an expectation and a knowledge of the way in which the kingly Messiah would be entering the city. And all his triumph and power, the chosen one of God would enter the city not with the pomp and circumstance that would be right for him to have and receive, but with humility. Not elevated, but lowly. He rode a young donkey, a colt that no one had ever ridden, which would be uh, right for him and proper in being the, the, the prerequisite for a king. But he rode this young colt, so small and lowly, it is possible that Christ's feet were hovering but inches above the ground if not touching them. He rode this historically stubborn animal who was unbroken, untrained, and ill-prepared for what he was about to be a part of. There was no saddle. No, as we see the disciples put the cloak over the beast for a saddle. Christ's humility is on full display here in his entrance into Jerusalem. And as we read in Philippians 2, 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by being, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He was obedient to the, the prophecies that promised who he was, and he will be obedient even to death on a cross. We see there that our Christ was humbled. He humbled himself, and how much more should we as those who, who are identified with Christ, how much more should we humble ourselves? We should not seek exaltation. Woe to us who would exalt ourselves in any way if the Lord and Savior would not do such a thing. And yet the people responded. As the Christ, meek and lowly, moved toward Jerusalem, there was an overwhelming sense of something unique happening something that elicited a response. The people began to come out, seeing a man that they had possibly heard of, may not have heard of. Some may have gathered and put together what they knew in the scriptures. They saw a man riding a young colt into the holy city of Jerusalem. Regardless of the reason, the people rightly responded with palms and praise. They began to lay down their own cloaks, they spread leafy branches that possibly were cut for the Feast of Booths, and they lay them down before the colt that was being ridden by the humble Messiah. They began to shout, Hosanna, 
which means Lord, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord from Psalm 118. Would they know, they would not fully know that what they were saying would be so true. The one in which they would cry Hosanna would be their salvation. And with this refrain, Christ descends down towards Jerusalem, coming down from atop the holy mount, um, so coming from top the Mount of Olives. It was a steep road. It's one of those roads where you have to kind of stand back as your feet go in front of you. It went down toward the Kidron Valley, toward the eastern wall of the temple. This picture here is actually a full circle of what happened in 586 B.C. During the second exile of Jerusalem, Ezekiel was standing on the Mount of Olives, and he saw the glory of God leave Jerusalem and rest on the Mount of Olives. And now Christ, the person of God, who comes down from the Mount of Olives and is coming to the temple, is the new locust day, the place of God. And the place of God and the presence of God, in verse 11 it says, entered into Jerusalem and went into the temple. And what appears here to be very anticlimactic when he would look around at the temple and then would leave and go back to Bethany. I read this and I was like, that's, that's not a great welcome. That's not a great entrance. That was actually very anticlimactic to the Hosanna, the proclamations of who he is. And he enters into the temple, looks around and goes back to his hotel. Okay. But let us not miss the significance here. There is great significance. The person of God enters the temple in human form. The presence of God was there. He was with Israel in the tabernacle. He was with Israel in the Holy of Holies. And he is now returned to the temple. There is great significance here. But as it was foretold, about the cornerstone. They did not recognize him. They did not see him. As John says, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Why was this? Why this was is probably revealed in our next part of Scripture, which is our second point. Christ, the victorious prophet. You see, we read the next day that Jesus and his disciples would make their way back from Bethany to Jerusalem, and on their way, Jesus was hungry, and seeing in a distance a fig tree in leaf, he went up to it to eat, but when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season of figs, the scriptures tell us, and then Jesus curses the fig tree, saying, may no one eat from you again. Now, this is the first time that we read Jesus exercising his divine power to the demise of something. And this action, this, these words would be troublesome for many. The famous philosopher Bertrand Russell being one of them. Uh, in his book, Why I Am Not a Christian, Russell cites this passage as being one of the reasons he rejects the Christ. He said, This incident displays Jesus as a man who expressed vindictive fury to an innocent plant. 
manifesting, uh, manifesting behavior that was not of a righteous man, let alone the Son of God. And other biblical scholars say the cursing of the fig tree was, quote, a waste of divine power. This part of Christ's ministry in Jerusalem has been difficult for many and perplexing for most. But to best understand the cursing of the fig tree, we must see this in the context of Mark. And Mark does a, a literary thing called a Marcan sandwich, which occurs here in verses 12 through 21. Now, the Marcan sandwich is a literary technique that Mark employs to help emphasize a point. Mark will begin telling an aspect of the gospel and will interrupt it, what seems like a, um, a story that has nothing to do with what was going on, and then he'll finish his narrative. Most, this, this action of, of Jesus cursing the fig tree um, is, is prophetic in its nature. One of the most graphic forms of prophetic communication of the Old Testament was the object lesson. The prophet would take something from nature, um, everyday life, as Amos did with the plumb line, and use it to communicate God's truth. Here, as the victorious prophet, Jesus found an object that illustrated the sin of hypocrisy. We know from archaeological study that there were rare types of fig trees that would be producing fruit out of the regular fig tree season. Jesus the creator of these rare fig trees, also a native to the land, would know what he would be looking for and when. This tree was in season, as was evident by the full leaves in which to show that it should be producing fruit. At the very least, these edible knobs called pagim. Yet, when Jesus arrives at the tree, there was no fruit. This hypocrisy of evidence of fruit, yet producing no fruit, would be one of the things that Jesus would accuse the religious leaders throughout the gospel of, especially in the gospel of Matthew, where he would call them whitewashed tombs, who looked good and pleasant on the outside, yet were filled with dead man's bones. As we will see in a moment, there will be the same judgment that he will pronounce on the temple and its leaders, which tells us the religious activity does not necessarily mean that there's evidence of the fruit of the Spirit. As we even encourage um, here at Liberty, the nine rhythms of grace, of gathered worship and generosity, service and mission, one anothering through spiritual gifts, daily prayer and Bible study, Sabbath, bodily consecration and relational pursuit. We are not saying that these things are in and of themselves evidences of the presence of God, they are ways in which to grow both in the awareness of the grace of God and obedience to God. But the danger that we so easily fall into is that religious activity can be a mask for spiritual vitality, which is why we who claim the name of Christ over us must always be pursuing Christ, the person of God, not the religious activity. It is so easy for us to, to pursue the activity of God and miss Christ. Miss the point of the activity. 
And in so doing, when we miss Jesus, our hearts become hardened to him, become hardened to God. Weary pilgrim, if this is you, if you have missed Jesus, if you have missed the point of your activity in church your whole life, if you've missed the fact that Jesus is enough, lay down your burden, lay down the weight, rest in Christ, seek Him, for He is, he is good, His yoke is light. We receive, not because of what we can do, but because of what Christ has done. We receive salvation. We are not justified by our activity, but we receive the justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. And thanks be to God that we have Christ, our victorious priest, who has made a way when there was no way. And now we see our third point, Christ, the victorious priest. We see now, after cursing the fig tree, Jesus and his disciples come into the temple. Immediately at entering the temple, in verse 15, he begins to drive out those who sold and who bought in the temple, and he overturned tables of the money changers. In verse 17, it says this, And he was teaching them, saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. When Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the money changers and overturn the tables, this activity would have been taking place in what uh, was the court of the Gentiles, the outermost portion of the temple. It was divided into four parts, each one being inside of the other. The outside being the court of the Gentiles, and then the court of women, of Jewish women, were allowed in the, the third portion, the second portion would be the, the, the court of Israel or, or the men of Israel could enter that one. And then there was the Holy of Holies, the, the Temple Mount Center. The, this activity, this commerce, uh, was happening in this Herodian temple that was built. It was a masterful work of architecture. The portico of, the, of where the Gentile court was, uh, was tremendous. There were... Uh, these columns that would reach 39, 40 feet in the air, covered by um, this portico topping, so it was covered from the sun, and they would, uh, they would gather there, and these columns were so large, that, uh, Josephus says that it would take three men, arm to arm, fingertip to fingertip, to reach around them. It was an incredible display. And he entered into this court, into this temple court. And there, trading was happening. Trading of money, Roman money for Jewish shekel, the selling and buying of temple sacrifices, souvenirs, and more. This was all occurring inside the court of the Gentiles. To grasp the gravity of how much commerce was occurring. Josephus, the, the Jewish historian, said that um, over Passover, over 255,000 sheep were sacrificed. That's a lot of sheep. 
And that's a lot of what sheep bring in that were, that were stored and exchanged for inside of this Gentile court. There was an incredible industry occurring in this temple. So when Jesus arrives to see all this hypocritical activity occurring along with the thievery in the name of worship, he is invoked to pronounce judgment upon them, chasing them out of the temple. And it happened, like I said, in the court of the Gentiles. The religious leaders, Pharisees, Sadducees, scribes, have permitted and potentially were benefiting from the misuse of this part of the temple. And this revealed what they thought about the Gentiles. You see, the, the tenor of Jewish thought of that day was to overthrow the Gentile Roman invaders and to remove them out of their lands, and particularly out of the temple. Yet Jesus comes and is making a way for the nations to hear, to pray, and to worship the one true God. Jesus, yet again, even in this action, is making a way for those who had no way. And when Jesus and the disciples left Jerusalem for the day, they passed the fig tree. In verse 20, they saw the fig tree and was withered away to its roots. And thus the victorious prophet, priest, and king, Jesus, would conclude his object lesson. That the fruit is connected to the root. And if the root is not connected to the true vine, it will not produce fruit. Rather, it will, be, it will wither and will be gathered and be thrown into the fire to be burned. In a way, he says, woe to those who have the appearance of fruit, but are in fact lacking the very thing for which they were created for. Now this points back to what was happening at the temple and the judgment that would be placed upon the entire temple itself and the Jewish leaders. But also, let that be a challenge and encouragement for us to examine our own hearts, that we would be connected to the true vine, Jesus Christ, the true vine that produces in us the fruit of repentance, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You see, against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh and with its passions and desires of repentance. So thanks be to God that we have for us a victorious prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ, the Holy One of God. Let's pray. Christ, our prophet, priest, and king, in your incarnation, life, death, and resurrection, you have purchased for us our salvation. You, O oh Christ, have made a way where there was once no way. And you have made a people who were once not your people. And you have made, God, for us an opportunity even now to come and partake of the good gifts of what you've done. Our great and living one, we give you thanks for this gift and for this feast which we now will celebrate. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. 
To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.